You've been listening to live coverage of Governor Josh Green's State of the State Address on member-supported Hawaii Public Radio, KHPR, Honolulu, KKUA, Wailuku, KANO, Hilo, KHPH, Kailua, Kona, KIPL, Lihue, and KJHF, Kuala Pu'u. Bill Dorman with you along with uh, Catherine Cruz as we swing into the conversation, <laughs> actually, at this hour. Governor went a little long with the, with yeah, the address. Yeah, surprising. I think it's one of the, the first time they've gone over a board like that but you know uh, I think for folks who are just tuning in uh, during uh, this first uh, state of the state address uh, Governor Josh Reen did get a standing ovation uh, when he uh, signed the emergency proclamation on homeless homelessness uh, and a way to deal with that crisis uh, so you know uh, Again, if you're just joining us, we have been uh, uh, tracking the governor's uh, speech, setting his priorities uh, uh, for this legislative session. And, uh, Bill, I don't know if you want to give us just some of the highlights um, for folks who didn't tune in. You know, it's interesting in terms of the tone and the approach. There was really... um palm branches, olive uh, branches, however you want to uh, express that in terms of tone of conciliation uh, with lawmakers. And if you look sometimes at speeches like this, it addresses, it's interesting to see what the differences are from the prepared text and what what the, the speechmaker actually uh, says. And he added several allusions to what the ledge has been doing already, for example, on affordable housing uh, and definitely giving progress to the legislature in terms of their activity, emphasizing that these are shared goals. Uh, Affordable housing in Hawaii, anybody here knows that this is an issue. The cost of living in Hawaii, anybody knows this. And you could hear the governor trying to to rally support around these issues. And really, in terms of the the beginning of the the address, when uh, the governor laid out some of his thoughts, you could really hear this as a theme of what he was talking about. This is our beginning, our Juliao, a moment to share our vision and values. Over the past few years, we've come through enormous challenges together. We endured a once in a century pandemic that impacted our way of life, threatened our economy, and robbed us of too many precious lives. We wrestled with a housing crisis, This housing crisis forced too many of our people out of our state in search of economic opportunity or, more importantly, affordable homes. We witnessed the risks and the consequences of an economy that's simply too dependent on tourism alone. And we suffered environmental threats from both pollution and the effects of global climate change. And you hear hear there again, towards the top of the speech, but laying out that that stretch starting from the pandemic and carrying through. And of course, the the role that that he played as lieutenant uh, governor, but also as a physician during that time and saying how using that experience to build on in terms of some of the other challenges facing the state, but but really laying out some of those priorities pretty clearly and priorities, by the way, that are shared by the legislature. Uh, leadership uh, 
on both sides of the aisle have, have flagged these as items, as I say, from affordable housing through climate, through other issues. Uh, so there's not a disagreement in terms of what is important, what is what are the center issues. It's, uh, if anything, in terms of approach, mm-hmm. but also interesting, he, he made it clear that a couple of times he said, if we have anything sort of in this direction, I will be supportive of it. Um, he's saying to the legislature, legislators, you come up with some of the details on this and I'll be supportive. So it's not a combative approach. Right. He says, let's see what we can produce coming together around these issues that are facing all of us, you know, not just Democrats, but Republicans, you know, independents, just folks that just grapple with these issues on a day to day basis, whether you're at the grocery store debating, you know, what you can afford to buy and put in your, your grocery cart, uh, you know, or when you're going through your mail and paying those bills as they come in. Oh, gosh, do I have enough there? And yeah, pocketbook issues um, and just things that we're challenged with every day. And, and also, it was interesting the way just politically he acknowledged all but said, listen, I know that I've rubbed some of you the wrong way over time. He, in the introduction, he took great pains to, to sort of elicit uh, more applause for Sylvia Luke. You know her. Uh, and then he talked about uh, when it came to his appointees that don't let your political opposition to me or, or friction that has been in the past uh, get in the way of working towards solutions together. And that includes the team that he wants to put together. Uh, just interesting, again, a matter of tone in terms of this address. Yeah, hopeful. New beginnings are always good. Uh, and uh, he is, uh, you know, one of his strengths is that he is a good communicator. You know, we saw that during the pandemic, uh, you know, where maybe the EGA administration uh, fell short. He kind of stepped up, you know, during COVID. And that's, I think, you know, what got him elected, you know, uh, in this position. So, yeah, his administration, I think, is going to, uh, put a lot of emphasis on communication and making sure that the information gets out so they know so everybody knows what you know they're working on and that if there are any problems if there's some you know miscommunication that that those get addressed uh, quickly you know, and you mentioned in, in terms of uh, earlier his, the emergency proclamation he did, speaking of communication, he took time out during the address, and an unusual step, uh, actually signed an emergency proclamation on, uh, on housing, which, as he said, did get a standing ovation. This emergency proclamation will streamline construction and processes for housing low-impact housing. It removes unnecessary barriers. It it removes red tape. We've done this before together and it worked. It enables our partners, our community leaders, to tackle homelessness head-on right quick, affordably. The copy of this proclamation will be delivered to your offices right now. Thank you for working with me on this. You know, and again, that that added line, thank you for working with me on this. That was not in the text of the speech, Mm -hmm. but acknowledging, again, that the legislature is moving on some of these issues that he is highlighting that for the administration are priorities. And again, the message of let's work together. Uh, You may have had political differences with me in the past or I may have annoyed you, but um, let's go ahead and focus on and agree on priorities and then you, the legislature, can also 
in terms of approach, you know where I'm coming from, basically. Yeah, and we are at a crossroads. I mean, we do have money, (laughs) you know, to spend, and we have the opportunity to get more money from the federal government. We've got to do it right. We've got to be smart about it. Uh, We've got to make sure that the systems that we've got in place can do the job, whether it's DHHL uh, or um, uh, the Hawaii Housing and Development Authority. You know, he's talking about, you know, putting a a billion dollars right into housing. Okay, do we have the right kind of people in those places to be able to see clearly and cut through some of the red tape without running afoul of procurement law, but, you know, just to make sure that we do it right. Because, like I said, we're at a crossroads. We have a great opportunity to to help ourselves, to help our people. And having some specificity attached to how that money will be spent. For example, on the uh, homelessness, uh, talking about uh, a dozen kahalas across the state and uh, now one on the Big Island, on on Kona side. Again, having enough of a beginning structure, but having flexibility for the legislature to have input on this. It's it's interesting to me. This is setting up almost the whole biennium for the legislature and, and for the beginning of the term uh, in terms of approach with uh, how he would like to work with the legislature. And he did, you know, uh, renew his commitment to uh, a new uh, prison. Uh, and as as well as the the stadium uh, project and and where we need to go to go with that, you know, because lots of uncertainty at the end of last year and the end of the EGA administration as to what really was going to happen. But I think underscoring his commitment to those two things and then uh, just his. Uh, uh, commitment to making sure that our drinking water is protected, you know, and mm-hmm. mentioning the Red Hill uh, issues in the military, uh, you know, plan to, to defuel. So, you know, hitting all those right notes. You know, I, I've got to mention also on ethics, uh, he mentioned uh, agreeing with the call from Civil Beat Law Center and their partners, government documents should be easily accessible and virtually cost-free to obtain. Hawaii Public Radio is a signatory to that document, and we've been waiting for the governor to say something about it. So he says that he uh, he agrees with that call and he's going to uh, continue to work on that. Interesting on that broader issue of ethics in the legislature, and that's another one that we'll uh, We'll be seeing, as with many of these topics, we'll see how it goes for the uh, for the rest of the session. But, Catherine, we'll let you get on with the rest of your program. Yeah, well, let the sunshine in. <laughs> I'm all for that. But thanks so much, Bill. We have uh, been talking with HPR's uh, news director, Bill Dorman. We have been uh, providing the highlights of Governor Josh Green's first State of the State address. Support for HPR comes from Kahilu Theater on Hawaii Island. Announcing a masterclass with Nan Giordano, Artistic Director of Giordano Dance Chicago for ages 14 to 18 this Friday. KahiluTheater.org. Today on The Daily, as House Republicans and President Biden head toward yet another showdown over the debt ceiling, we look at which party is really behind the original problem of the United States ballooning debt. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. 
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the immersive exhibition Rebecca Louise Law, Awakening, Exploring the Human Connection to Nature. Now on view, details at honolulumuseum.org. From senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway, don't lock up the hall. We are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. Our reality check today looks at hydrogen power, uh, building on what we just heard from Governor Josh Green's address. Honolulu Civil Beat business reporter Stuart Yurton joins us today. Good morning, Stuart. You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. Our reality check today looks at hydrogen power, building on what we just heard from Governor Josh Green's address. Honolulu Civil Beat business reporter Stuart Yurton joins us today. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. Gosh, so you had some inside track on hydrogen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, a little bit. It has been announced already, so it's not anything new uh, that we had an inside track, but we really thought this was an important uh, project and, and weighed in on it, and we're lucky to see that uh, the governor mentioned it as well and thought the same thing. Yeah, and a lot of this is supposedly going to be driven by the Department of Business, uh, Economic Development, and Tourism. Yes, that's right, Catherine. It's the state energy office that's really uh, leading this and coordinating everything, but it's a big consortium of private companies as well. So while uh, we think about matching funds, something like $500 million in matching funds from the community here, it's not public money. It's not taxpayer money like with rail or something like that. This would be $500 million in private investment and then $500 million from the federal government to equal about a billion dollars. And, you know, we do have uh, a familiar face now heading the energy office. Yes, that's right. Uh, Mark Lick is heading the energy office. We have uh, Chris Sadiasu heading uh, DBED. So there is a new uh, team in there, um, even though there are familiar faces. And again, the question is, can this be a really big first uh, win for the new DBED uh, office and the new state energy office. And uh, we did, uh, for our listeners, you know, our, we did make a, a, a kind of a, say, short list, right, a round two. We made it into round two for this uh, uh, energy proposal. Yes, that's right. So we don't want to overplay this. And as one of our readers said in our comments on Civil Beat, they said, well, just too early to run a victory lap. And that's true. But to put it in perspective, there were 80 applicants on this initial uh, application. The Department of Energy winnowed that down to about 30. So we made a cut less than um, a third of the people were uh uh, you know, chosen. And then we have maybe 10 projects nationally that are going to be funded. So we theoretically have a one in three chance of getting this. And we're really the only thing in the Pacific. So in a vast area that would 
partner with Japan and Australia is is the idea to have these hydrogen hubs, hydrogen fuel hubs throughout the Pacific. We really could play a really important role in that, and this is part of the plan and part of the pitch, as much as we can tell from the state and the the state energy office and DBED. So if we can be innovative and uh, really get these projects underway, I mean, I know your article talks about, you know, we do have a... uh, I guess a customer potentially in the wings because the military has a large presence out here in the Pacific. Right, that's the idea. I mean, bear in mind this is this can be used for transportation. So it could be used for cargo ships, container ships, but it could also be used by the military for ships as well. So there is a very big customer that has a lot of interest in developing hydrogen as an alternative to oil. Well, you know, uh, I know they just came off of energy conference, and and I think we were told, right, we've got to seize the moment here uh, and take advantage of our place in the Pacific uh, and and what we can do, you know, toward achieving these green energy goals, which are very ambitious. Uh, But, you know, we, we want to be cautious. We don't want to, you know, think big and then fail. Well, that's right. Uh, And one of the things to think about is, yes, this... Energy conference was just here, and I'm also told that private investors might be interested in funding the additional $500 million. So we don't necessarily need the federal government to step in. This plan appears to really have viability and to fill an important need. Uh, Whether it can happen, and again, a lot needs to go right before Hawaii either lands the federal money or lands private money or can or and can go forward with something with all kinds of uh, problems that could arise environmental concerns and other things that could come up and challenges there's a lot to be done but this does seem like a very viable uh, project Right. And, you know, it's like uh, like the director of energy said, right, seize the day, carpe diem. You know, we've got this opportunity. Uh, Let's not blow it. That's the idea. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much, uh, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. We've been talking to business reporter Stuart Yurton for today's reality check. You can read his story at civilbeat.org. You're tuned to The Conversation here on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Time now for your Backyard Quiz. Hawaii is home to many musicians of varying ability and experience. Some stay home to build our audience. Others set out to chase their dreams outside of our state. But for every Bruno Mars, there's a handful of talented Hawaii musicians that play gigs and record albums, but don't achieve that same commercial success. John Ozaka is a local musician who moved to Seattle and Los Angeles to pursue his music dreams. The most streamed song on his last album is titled, Where's Bob Dylan When You Need Him? 
some dough Sam and Colleen, not just a joke I've got a life that's kinda broke I've got a dog that doesn't bark He's dying of a broken heart And my best friend, he ain't too smart My life's falling apart for today's Backyard Quiz, what Oahu community does Hawaii musician John Ozaka call home? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing affordable housing for families, such as the Institute for Human Services. NareetHawaii.com. Our talkback line is the way we receive feedback and comments from our listeners. Following last week's call-in show about Ka'ena Point becoming a national heritage area, several people reached out to share their impressions on the effort to protect the natural reserve on Oahu's northwest corner. We got this from Jim Murray. I've had a long love affair with Ka'ena Point ever since I first went out there more than a half century ago. That was when a high school classmate tried to drive us around from the Yokohama side in a Corvair. That did not end well. It was not long, however, before Ka'ena Point became my favorite hike on the island, and it still is. Murray added that an, uh, another visit to get photos for an article he was writing drew him to the site later in the day. I remember that I wanted a photo of the arch in the foreground and Makua Valley in the back, but I wanted Makua illuminated, which meant I had to be there at sunset. I didn't have a good camera, so I took home one from work. I drove to Yokohama, hiked out to the arch, and got my photo. I had forgotten that I would be walking back much of the way in darkness. I was by myself and pretty uneasy, but everything went well. And here were a few, a few voicemails from our listeners. Aloha, this is Chris Tipton from Kiki on Oahu. Just like to share my uh, memory of Hyena Point. It was the first time I'd ever seen the Hawaiian monk seal out in the waters. The hike about maybe 10 years ago or so. There was just a pair of them lounging in the sun on the shore. Happy to hear about it gaining a heritage status. Mahalo. My name is Jim. I remember Kaina Point when the road was maintained by the Army. We used to surf the Yokohama Bay and go all the way around in my surfing days to Mokalea and Dillingham Field. My best memory was when my friend worked at the Kalalea Hilton, as it was called back in August 1970. He says, could you drive a few guys around the island? I said, I had nothing to do. Well, it turned out to be Jim Morrison and Robbie Krager of The Doors, and uh, that was the first stop, Kaina Point. And since we couldn't go around the other way, because the road was maintained. I had a military-dependent ID. We went through Lualuale uh, Magazine, through Koikoli Pass, Field, and all the way around the island. Okay, have a nice day. Bye-bye. Hi, my name's Brendan Holland. I'm a conservation biologist, and I specialize in Hawaiian snails and tree snails. 
And I just wanted to add that there are additional natural resources out there in the form of an entire community of endemic Oahu land snail fossils. Conditions at Kaena Point are such that these fossils have been preserved, and we have an ongoing project where we have done some radiocarbon dating of around 30 shells, and the age ranges from 20,000 years ago to about 46 or 47,000 years old. And so this tells us that at that time, the environment was really completely different out there, and there was you know, different vegetation. It was cooler and wetter right down to sea level. And so this is an ongoing project that we are working on at Hawaii Pacific University. Thanks. That was a great discussion. And Theo West had this feedback. Love this. Only caught a part of it. I'm really realizing that the general public does not get information which makes conservation relevant and specific things that they all can do. Our oceans, earth, support our existence. We get so caught up in our limited scope, we don't see why we all need to be concerned and to participate. I started putting uh, Bokashi on my food scraps during COVID and gave it away by advertising it on Craigslist. And then I taught a class in EM and Bokashi so people could learn how to do this. If I could help schools develop lesson plans to increase awareness, I would love to participate. Hey, thanks, everybody, for the feedback. Uh, you can email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or call our talkback line 792-8217. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at mobi.com. For those who are recovering from substance abuse, how do you know if a sober living home is right for your next step? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about the ways to know how to get the right kind of help. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Zippy's Restaurants, offering breakfast, lunch, dinner, and desserts. Online ordering at zippies.com or by downloading the app. This month marks the 120th anniversary of Korean immigration to Hawaii. It's part of our state's rich cultural history tied to plantation life, which has mostly faded away. The conversation Stephanie Han gives us a glimpse of what and why we are marking this important milestone. In 1903, 102 Koreans stepped off the SS Gaelic in Honolulu Harbor to work on the plantations in the territory of Hawaii. By 1905, more than 7,226 Koreans migrated, their hopes to educate their children, to practice Christianity, and to fight Japanese colonialism. This year, there will be events to mark the 120th anniversary of Korean immigration. January kicked off with a banquet that recognized the local community. So, my name is Jeff Hogg. I'm a fifth generation Korean American. My family came here in 1904. I am 
student and I am adopted from Pinsan City, Korea. Very exciting. I'm very proud of Choi family, mother's side. Honored to be here as my latest film, Four Songs of Love, that commemorating 120 years of Korean immigration to Hawaii. short film, Songs of Love, featured Honolulu Symphony concertmaster Ignis Iggy Jang and Christina Suhisa Jang, and plaques honoring Korean patriots who struggled against Japanese colonialism were given to their descendants. I'm a descendant from this first wave of immigrants, but what struck me at this event was not only the pride everyone had about South Korea's economic success, as well as their own personal American story, but also the subtle and not so subtle references to the Korean War, one that 70 years later remains unresolved. The crowd sang both national anthems. The room was full of pride, but there was also another feeling, Han. This Han is not my last name, and it is not referred to the Han people of China, but a feeling. A word to describe this feeling has no translatable English equivalent and is subjective, yet at the same time is understood by all Korean language speakers. I asked a friend who immigrated over 25 years ago, So Young Hiremath, to give a definition. Han is a emotional, one of the emotional characteristics of Korean, that it's a deep feeling wrapped by sorrows. It sounds negative, however, Koreans use this emotion to be more resilient and hopeful so that they don't give up and keep moving on to their daily life. Joy, love, and also Han captures the feeling of the artwork at the mayor's office in Honolulu Hale on display until February 10th. Exhibits include a Korean-American foundation project led by Ducky Murabayashi of Cemetery Gravestone Rubbings of first-wave migrants or immigrants throughout the islands. There are also pictures of early 20th century local life. Finally, there are selected images from the portfolio of the only known Korean-American woman photographer to document the ordinary lives of people in post-war Korea from 1956 to 57. Full disclosure, this photographer is my mother, Marie Ann Han Yu, raised in Kunia, the daughter of a Luna and nurse. She debuted her work at the Korea Society at the age of 85, and her images have appeared in National Geographic. I'm a third-generation Korean-American born in Hawaii. My grandparents immigrated here in search of a better life, and I grew up on the Del Monte pineapple plantation. My father was a Luna and my mother a nurse. In 1956, 
I was a 20-year-old college student at UH. My sister Elizabeth Batman and I traveled to Korea to meet my mother, Salome Choi Han, who was an administrator at the Bondok Hotel. This was the only Western-style hotel at that time. And in the aftermath of the war, the hotel was a gathering place for many government officials and businessmen. We lived there for a year and a half. And because of that, we had an opportunity to travel throughout Korea. I had never been abroad, so everything was different for me. The city, the people, the historical sites of Korea. I wanted truly to capture all this. So with my first paycheck I received from working at the U.S. Army base in Yongsan, I went to the PMs and bought a Japanese camera. It was a Petri. It had a 2.5 lens and Kodachrome film. I actually knew nothing about taking pictures. I had to learn to set the camera, which I quickly were in order to capture the moment. The Korea I saw in these photos is now gone, but what remains unchanged is the resilience of the people, their hard work, and their vision to move their country forward. The Korean-American population numbers over 2 million, with over 50,000 in the state of Hawaii. Check out the Honolulu Hale exhibit running till February 10th, and keep your eyes open for events that will be held all year. That was a story about the 120th anniversary of Korean immigration to, uh, to Hawaii uh, through the eyes of HPR Stephanie Han, a Korean-American. Support for HPR comes from An Evening with David Sedaris. The humorist, comedian, and author is coming to the UH Hilo Performing Arts Center on Hawaii Island Saturday, February 11th. Tickets at davidsedarishawaii.com. Next time on The World, celebrating the Lunar New Year. In China, there are concerns that elderly family members will be exposed to COVID for the first time. That's less of a concern in Taiwan, where quarantine-free travel opened up last fall. Now Taiwanese families are welcoming loved ones home. Some have been stuck abroad since before the pandemic. A Lunar New Year family reunion in Taiwan on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from Hakawone, committed to building a neighborhood in Kaka'ako Makai where all are welcome, offering keiki and kupuna care, and including a cultural center, farmers markets, and housing options. Hakawone.com.
This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now, astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence in covering light pollution. Citizen scientists are charting sky glow and the increasing loss of the night sky. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time. And as usual, we are so fortunate to have the guided tour provided by astronomer Christopher Phillips. We got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, what's going on this week? Welcome back. Hey, Dave. It's good to be here. So this week, stargazers, Mars can be found in the south after sunset and will be with us with most of the night. The moon this week is passing through its first quarter phase, meaning conditions will be great for stargazing. On that note of conditions, something that is critical for cats like Chris, and that is avoiding light pollution. And I understand Stan, you've got a story about light pollution today. Indeed, and it's brought to us by the Globe at Night. And the Globe at Night is a citizen science program run by the National Science Foundation's Noir Lab. Its aim is to chart the increase in light pollution across the world. And their most recent study has shown that we are losing our night sky at an unprecedented rate due to urban light pollution. Over 80% of the people in the U.S. can no longer see the Milky Way in our night skies. And 30% of the world's population have suffered the same consequence. Sky glow? Is that what you're talking about, Chris? Indeed, and it's a serious problem. Anyone that lives in an urban area can see that at night, even during the darkest times of the year, the sky still seems to be bright. This is the result of light pollution, and satellite observations have confirmed that it's increasing. Does that mean, Chris, this is a bit of poppycock? <laughs> I wish it was. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right, well, I'll try that one another time. But this is a very serious problem uh, because it actually affects our great friends, the animals, right? It really does. Nocturnal animals in urban areas have had their natural rhythms disrupted as the difference between night and day becomes less apparent. Even birds that are normally not active during dark nights are still singing way into the evening. And then the uh, human health implications are in there too. Yeah, and the worrying thing is they're not fully understood. There is some evidence to suggest that human health is negatively impacted by constant light sources, and there may even be a link to cancer. But this link requires a great deal more analysis. Do you have any good news today in your report? <laughs> I do. Raising awareness is key to combating light pollution. As light pollution becomes unpopular, businesses and civil infrastructure can adapt to produce less polluting lights, such as those found in Hawaii Island. Globe at Night plays a key role in this as it relies on regular people contributing to the study, and anyone can get involved. That means you can do your bit for the community and our fellow animal friends by joining the effort. Christopher Phillips, thank you so much. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at haleakalaranch.com. Time now for your Backyard Quiz Answer. We highlighted Hawaii-raised musician John Ozaka's. Uh, he began uh, taking guitar lessons at the age of 15 and says he played in at least seven bands before moving to Seattle a few weeks uh, after graduating high school in the 1990s. Ozaka quickly uh, joined a band but eventually quit the group to pursue a solo career. He says after a while he went from small gigs where he, paid, uh, in, he was paid in sandwiches uh, to opening for national acts like Brian Seltzer and Jewel. He re- 
uh, released three albums uh, to date, 2000 From There to Here, 2005's First Sign of Anything, and 2007's Elephant Graveyard. Quite an accomplishment, considering it's not an easy thing to record an album or tour with national acts, especially for a musician from the small town of Waimanalo, which is the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. At last check, Ozaka uh, married his current wife in 2009. He started a family, and he currently splits time between L.A. and his wife's home home country of New Zealand. We had no winners uh, to our, our uh, quiz today. Uh, we stumped you on that one. But that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. What does it mean to be local? That's a question that Oahu native and NBC News editor Jessica Machado examines in her new memoir entitled Local. Machado's father was Hawaiian Portuguese. Her mother was from uh, uh, the American South. And while growing up, she wrestled with her multi-ethnic identity and often questioned whether she was local. That conflict caused her reckless spiral as a young adult, something she was able to come out of after embracing her native Hawaiian identity. The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Machado in our studios to discuss identity and what it means to be local today. When we were growing up, what did it mean to be local? Yeah, I feel like the easy catch-all answer was you were born and raised in Hawaii, right? If you didn't quite know how to explain it, that's what we did. But there was also like, and, and some of this was like a stereotype that that I sort of fell into is that like you you need to have like a certain color skin. You should be like a sub mixture of like ten different ethnicities. You probably speak a little bit of pigeon or you know, at least, you know, there's inflection there. You like to be at the beach a lot. Like there's you know, there's like these stereotypes of like what it means to be like, you're chill, right? Like I yeah, feel like that's the right. number one one <laughs> is like you're not a high strung anxiety ridden person fighting those kinds of tendencies like I was <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> but you know, obviously there's many types of being local. If I thought about it further, I would I thought about it how like if our ancestors usually went back to like plantation days, right. like there's a certain set of ethnicities that sort of fall into local category and that comes from that time of like being in the plantations. But obviously that's not true, right? Because mm -hmm. there's other Polynesians, there's like Tahitians and Samoans and Tongans, and they were not part of that. And they're here for many generations. They're local. Like there's Howleys, you know, that have been here, you know, longer than, you know, older than I am that, you know, they're local Howleys, right? Like yeah. there's so many different nuances to it. But growing up, it was just like, I felt like you had to maybe act or look a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree that growing up, that, that tend to be the marker. But I think things are different now. And I don't know if it's because society is different, or I don't know if it's just because we're at a point in our life where we can kind of look back and be more objective. But I like what you wrote in your book. You say that today there is no cut and dry rubric for what makes someone local though it is loosely defined as someone born and raised in Hawaii or someone who has lived in Hawaii long enough to truly, honestly live aloha aina. Ultimately, being local is less about skin color and more about caring for the people and the aina. Can you talk a little bit more about that, how you arrived at that thought? Yeah. I mean, you know, I've, I moved away quite a few years ago. And I come back and, you know, I see that there's, you know, my parents now live, or my stepmom now lives in Waimanalo. And so we're like on that side of the island. And I come in contact with people who haven't always lived here. And it's segregated, right? Like there's like some level of 
but you don't really want to understand maybe the history of Hawaii, or, or maybe if you, you don't even need to. I mean, I grew up not even fully understanding the history of Hawaii, but you don't want to integrate into the culture, or you don't want to, you know, the idea of like, you know, they live on Agland. Like, you don't want to, you're not growing food mm-hmm. for your community, right? Like, you're complaining about this, or like, you know, you go to Lani Kai and it's like, which is not its real name, I found out when writing this book, <laughs> you know, and it's like you, you get $200 tickets if you park there, right? Like, these are people who kind of want to, you know, it's, you want to have this exclusivity, right? Instead of like, caring about integrating and caring about the land and wanting to be part of and wanting to understand why why do we eat mac salad with all of our meals like you know like right. why are you know and so to me like that felt like the distinction right and I, I felt like as I started to understand that you know like I'm local right like mm-hmm. because I do care and that's what makes me feel local is that I care about these things right and I, and I have these connections and I haven't lived here in a long time and I come back and my friends and I are like still super close you know we still can pick up where we left off we can still talk about like what restaurants or you know places are no longer there but we could also talk about like you know goofy things we did in high school or something you know it's just like this very warm vibe you know like I, aloha is used to is overused sometimes but i feel real aloha is like coming in open and like really wanting to get it and understand the culture here and people can sense it too right locals yeah. can sense other locals. I remember I got off the plane in Kona once and I was in the line walking out towards the baggage claim and the security guard at that door of no return was greeting everybody. You know, they were saying, Aloha, welcome, welcome. And as I passed the door, I goes, How's it, brother? Welcome, <laughs> welcome. So that I love Oh my that. God, that makes yeah. you yes. That makes you feel yeah. like yes, they know yeah. I belong here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. So I, yeah, I, I love that. Your book is is a memoir, and it traces your life from a very young age into adulthood. And the reason I think your story is so compelling is certainly because I relate to a lot of the the events that happened in your life. A lot of the ways that you were raised kind of mirrored the way that I was raised. But you also went on this journey to come to the place where you are today. And I don't want you to give your whole book away, but can you kind of talk about that journey or talk about how that journey started? Yeah, I mean, I think I grew up feeling a little lonely, right? I wasn't an only child for a large portion of my childhood, and and I lived in Hawaii. This is a beautiful place, and I was indoors a lot. My parents worked, as parents do, and I just didn't sort of, you know, I was part of the culture, but I wasn't at the same time, right? Sometimes, like, I felt very isolated. And so those feelings of isolation start manifesting in different ways, right? Like, you know, especially when you're a teenager, you rebel. And I was like, you know, I was like a punk rock goth chick in high school and college. But at that same time, I was not alone. Like, there was a lot of people in those scenes that didn't feel like they had to be, you know, happy locals to quote unquote, right? Like, there was... It was the 90s. <laughs> right. And so, you know, my mom was also ill, and that was hard. And I was also, you know, a little ambitious, right? So once I graduated from UH, I decided I would apply for some internships on the mainland because maybe the mainland is where I fit in better. And yes and no, right? You know, I don't, again, I don't want to ruin the book. But, you know, that feeling of isolation had nothing to do with you know, this place is better than this place. It was my own disconnection that I had to mend. And even like moving further and further away, now I live in New York, I think it it really took being that far away to sort of understand 
what I had been missing. Right. Yeah. Right. It's such a strange thing, I think, sometimes. A lot of us that grow up here, maybe because it's just all we know, sometimes it takes us having to step outside of Hawaii to really appreciate our culture and our and our way of life. I know that was the experience that I had. I moved to Denver and I lived there for 15 years. I can say for sure that I didn't appreciate Hawaiian music. Mm-hmm. I didn't appreciate Hawaiian food. Totally. I didn't appreciate the Hawaiian way of life until it wasn't around me all the time every day. And then all I wanted for much of those 15 years was just to come back home. Yeah. At what point did you, in your time away from Hawaii, at what point did you start to get that urge to return yeah. and, and to really grab onto your identity as a Hawaiian? Yeah, it's interesting because I always missed home, but I wanted to pretend like I was tough. Like when I moved to LA, I was just like, well, I got to stick it out. I don't want to be those people that come home, right. right? I mean, like in any small town kind of way, right? But yeah, I don't think I fully realized and wanted and and yearned for it in a way and also like wanted to own my native Hawaiian identity too until my dad started to get ill so he got ill about 10 years ago I want to say and and it started to make me think like when my dad's gone my mom's gone right my, when my dad's gone what is my connection to home and like what is our connection to our native Hawaiian ancestry and it started to make me yearn for that and want to study it like our history and and also in my own job in my work you know I've been the identities editor at several publications and so I've for a long time covered race and socioeconomics and gender but I decently versed in a lot of American history like continental history and I realized wait a minute (laughs) I think I should learn some of my own right obviously I was drawn to those things for a reason because I did sort of always feel like, what am I? Am I local? Am I Haole? Am I, you know, am I Hawaiian enough? You know, but yeah, I think it took wanting to know that the Hawaii would still be there for me and being in touch with that, even if my dad wasn't going to be here. And talking about family dynamic, one thing that your book showed me that I was never able to articulate before was how much influence Western culture and the tourism industry had on our family dynamic and identity. In your book, you write, growing up in Makakilo in the 80s and 90s, all I knew was the town I lived in was quiet and boring. I hardly noticed the beauty of the mountains I saw from my living room every day. We were taught to see our homeland the way tourists did, always sunny and uncomplicated and a playground for others. And, and then when I look back at my family growing up, I feel like I experienced a lot of the distance that you described. You describe a, a distance between you and your parents and the distance between your parents. How did you come to that awareness? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like, we never talked about that my mom was Howley from Louisiana. I mean, we did. We joked about it, you know, and, like, that my dad was local and he was Portuguese Hawaiian. And, like, we knew those things. But we never talked about how they sort of intersected and clashed Mm -hmm. and what that meant for me. And I think that that's really important. I wrote this essay a couple years ago about being ethnically ambiguous, especially on the mainland, Mm -hmm. right? Like, what are you, right? Machado sounds Latina even. And I got a lot of responses from parents who were like, I married so-and-so outside of my race and like our kids are mixed and like, what should we be talking about? And I'm like, just talk about it, right? Like ask them. And even in some place like Hawaii where everyone's mixed, right? It's important not to just gloss over that, right? 
And I don't know, things have probably changed. We live in a different time now. But when I was growing up, it was very much like, it's the melting pot. Like, we're all fine and hunky-dory. And in the plantation days, like, everybody shared food. And that's how we all got along. And that's how we ended up with pigeon. Hooray! <laughs> you know? And like, but it was like, uh, everyone was getting paid garbage. And right. like, plantation times were not fun. And they were actually pitting these ethnicities against each other. And it wasn't only until they rallied against the white plantation owners was their solidarity. And I think like knowing that history and making sure that everyone's always aware of that history, I think that that's really important. And again, I think some of that's changed. I think it's a requirement in schools now to like teach, you know, Hawaiian studies. But I, for me, like my Hawaiian studies class in high school was super basic and didn't get in any of that kind of stuff. It was still sort of that very it's all good now, who cares? Like, you know, right? Good thing somebody came and discovered us, you know, <laughs> and it's like, ee. <laughs> uh, and, and talking about Hawaiian history, one thing about your book that I think is a very fresh approach to this kind of storytelling is how you weave in history about Hawaii to give readers a deeper understanding of your perspective of a particular event or moment in your life. How did that come about? Yeah, that took time. I, th- You know, the book started... When my mom died, obviously, it was very, it affected me a lot, right? It was hard for me. And so I, when I started the book, it was a, a lot of our, about our relationship and loneliness, right? And like this loneliness I felt, or that I always felt between us and was unsure of, right? And as a writer, you want to kind of like excavate and get to the point. And, mm-hmm. and as a journalist, I really, you know, it's like kind of killed me not to understand her. How do I? how do I get her, you know, right? And so it started off that way. But as time went on and I shelved the book and I picked it back up, I was like way more interested in like this general feeling of loneliness and why that was, right? And some of that, you know, as I realized, like you said, like, you know, we lived in this very, the the 80s was like, you know, you wanted to live in this, you know, the idea was like you were a middle-class family living in this house in Makakilo and you had like nice rattan furniture (laughs) and right, and your kid went to private school, but like, you know, why are there private school? You know what I mean? Like, there's just like, we lost all the history of like, like why these were like the, these are the goals, right? Like, why do we have these westernized goals? Like, why are we, you know, why why is this important? And so I started to question that and I think because I was always like this sort of skeptical person, right? Like I was always like, what? Are we really happy? You know, <laughs> right? You know, that. so that was always there. And so I started to poke at those things. And I wanted to learn more about my history. I wanted to learn correctly, right? I didn't want to read the textbook from somebody, you know, somebody who's not local, somebody who's not Hawaiian wrote, you know, 45 years ago. I wanted to go to the, you know, the Kanaka scholars and, and the local people who, and that have been writing these histories down. And so that became very important to me. And I could see that, you know, some of this, you know, my own struggles of not feeling Hawaiian enough was like by design, right? Like that's colonialism at work, Mm -hmm. like making sure that, you know, if you're not 50% Hawaiian, then you're not Hawaiian, right? (laughs) You know, right? And um, and you realize like, oh wait, that goes back to like ceded lands and like, you know, weird, you know, and and so once you dig into the history more, my own feelings started to make sense, you know? Well, thanks so much, Jessica. Your book, Local, is out now, right? Yes. All right. And thanks so much for hanging out with me. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Me too. This was a lovely conversation. That was author Jessica Machado talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. We'll have links to where you can find Machado's memoir, Local, on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today.
Well, that is it for us today. On the lineup tomorrow, Pacific Business News is marking its 60th anniversary. We plan to look back and look forward to the next 60 years. Got some feedback for us? Call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. You can find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. Thank you.